Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm State Historian Walt Woodward. In this episode, I talk with material scientist and author Anissa Ramirez about her award-winning and highly acclaimed book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another, on virtually every national top science book of the year list for 2020, The Alchemy of Us is a wonderfully readable, lively, smart, and witty account of the development of eight inventions that have not only transformed the way we live, they've transformed us, too. Not surprisingly, half of those inventions have important Connecticut connections. In our conversation, we talk about the role of Samuel F. Morse, Edwin Land, and Sonia's William Wallace, and New Haven's George Coy in creating things that have helped the world convey, see, capture, and think. It's a fascinating talk with a great storyteller, and it's coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. Every once in a while, you encounter a book that is so interesting on so many levels that you walk away wondering, how did anybody write a book that good? So it is with science writer and material scientist Anissa Ramirez's The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. It's informative, revealing, provocative, inspiring, and it's written with remarkable economy of style and an absolutely sparkling wit. And I'm certainly not alone in my appreciation of this book. Smithsonian Magazine called it one of the 10 best science books of 2020. NPR's Science Friday named it one of the best science books of 2020. Science News also called it one of our favorite books of 2020. And The Alchemy of Us also won the American Association for the Advancement of Science's Subaru SB&F Prize for Excellence in Science Books in the Young Adult category. And that's just a sampler of the accolades this remarkable book has received. Today, I'm excited to welcome Anissa Ramirez to Grading the Nutmeg to talk about her book and some of its sometimes surprising Connecticut connections. Anissa, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Walt. In The Alchemy of Us, you tell stories behind eight inventions and how each of these inventions, in a sense, reinvented human society and culture. It's easy to see how the idea for the book is connected to your experience as a material scientist, but unlike most scientists' work, The Alchemy of Us is written in a style that is, and I mean this literally, it's just amazingly accessible and jargon-free. It's science and the history of science for everybody in a style that makes it hard to put down. Now, your commitment to writing really readable and accessible science goes back to your first encounters with science as a young girl, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I fell in love at a very early age when I was watching television, of all things. Now, I was a curious little girl. I like to take things apart. But when I was watching this show called 321 Contact, which was on Channel 13 back in Jersey City, I saw a program where there was a segment of kids solving problems called the the Bloodhound Gang. And one of those characters was an African-American girl. And when I saw her, I saw my reflection. So that's what put me on the path to want to consider to do science. And years later, I decided that I wanted to be a material scientist. How old were you when you first said, this is my direction? Well, I wanted to be a scientist since I was four. But that show came on years later, but that really solidified it for me because I hadn't seen my reflection. I was one of those kids that took things apart and I like I had a chemistry set. I would do all those kinds of experiments, but I never really saw anyone who looked like me doing science. So when I saw her, I was like, "Okay, well, this is what I'm doing. So I knew from a very early age. This love of science that you got first when you were four and was nurtured with what is it? Three, two, one contact was three, two, one contact. Yeah. It was nearly crushed when you got to college, right? Absolutely. So here I am, so geeked, ready to become a scientist. I'm taking these uh, classes for the engineering curriculum back at Brown. And there are some weed-out classes. And one of the ones in particular is this chemistry class where uh, they actually know that students will not survive the class. And lucky for me, I was able to find a, a great tutor and spend a lot of time in the library to get past it. But 
when I survived, I said, you know what, I'm going to do something down the road. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to make others' journeys through science better than my own. And it took a couple of decades, but it ended up being this book. So you come out of college and you're connected or you're committed, I guess, to connecting people to that love of science you had early on. Right. Don't know how you're going to do it. And as you said, it takes another 20 years till you right. have the have the big aha moment. And I just love the story. You talk about this at the beginning of your book. Tell us what happened. Well, I've been a material scientist for some time, and, and a lot of people around me don't really know what that is. And I, I've been having a tough time figuring out how to explain how important this field was. So a couple of years ago, I signed up for some glassblowing classes. Uh, there's a studio in Brantford, not far from where I live. And that had been on my bucket list for a long time, so I signed up for these classes. But little did I know that it would give me the idea for the book. So one day I'm going to class, and I'm not in the best of moods because some not-so-nice things were happening at work. So I'm in a bad mood, and I'm working with the glass. I take out too much glass. I'm making a piece that's way beyond my skill. And what happens is that this piece falls on the floor. Uh-oh. Yeah. And there's a lot of mayhem because hot glass can burn a hole through your shoe. It can, it can cause a fire. And so my instructor rushes over. He has heat-resistant gloves. He reattaches the vase to my pipe, and he gives it back to me, and we put it over to the area where it cooled. Now, as it's cooling and I'm calming down, I'm realizing that I'm actually in a pretty good mood. In fact, I'm pretty happy to be alive. <laughs> and I said, well, what did that? It was the glass piece. I was shaping the glass when I dropped it, and it actually shaped me. And so that's what put me on the path to explore I wonder how materials and humans have been shaping each other over the last few centuries. And so now I had the way to explain how important material science was. It's just amazing where these insights come from, isn't it? It is, if you're paying attention. If you, you know, really you if you're have an attention. accident and you get an award-winning book out of it. Very good. <laughs> right. And I still have that vase, by the way. So so one of the very effective ways you show the alchemy between material transformation, invention, and human culture is through your book structure. I mean, it's one of the things I was first impressed about is the way you put this book together. You link each of the inventions you talk about to a key verb that highlights how that invention transformed human experience. So carbon filaments, right? You talk about how, um, how light bulbs helped us see, and the one on the switches led to the silicon chips, and that chapter's titled Think. Mm -hmm. Was that an idea you had at the beginning, or did this develop as you were putting the book together? Oh, that's a great question. It was in the beginning um, I came up with the idea because I really wanted to show how these inventions shaped humans. And I couldn't think of anything more personal than verbs. You know, how we think, how we convey, how we connect. These verbs that we believe to be ours were shaped by technology. And so that was very much part of the initial uh, construction of the, of the book. Now, that also helped because when I was looking for stories, it kind of had to fit how it shaped how we think or how it shaped how we see. So it was very, it, it was very important for me to set that arch architecture from the very, very beginning so that I could uh, develop the, the chapters accordingly. Well, and, and the one verb that jumps out from all of them to me, and we'll talk about it a little later, is the verb capture, which you capture. use in one chapter. And that, yeah. that that's so multi-layered. It's really remarkable. But I love this concept. So you've got a structure that I think is brilliant. But the real magic of the book, for me anyway, comes from its focus on storytelling. This is the part I really love. You connect the lives of scientists that people know and they've heard about with people they've never heard of who were actually supporting scientists or who made the great work as it was possible. And it's not just that these are the, the people who helped make the great man great, but all of them are presented as real human beings. You just completely got rid of the great scientific, scientific genius figure on Mount Olympus, didn't you? Right, right. Because it's not true. It's not true. Um, when we think about Edison, we think about how prolific he was. But if you look, you'll see that he had a laboratory with lots of men working on things. So it wasn't just one man. And, and the reason why I did that is that there are a lot of books about innovators and they promote people as geniuses. But when you read it, you don't feel connected to these people because you're like, well, I'm not a genius. I'm not going to do what they're going to do. But if you see their human side, so, you know, I talk about Edison and I talk about Morse, but if you see their failings, they seem a little bit more relatable. And so that innovation feels relatable too. So I really wanted to, to knock that 
that premise of the, the great genius down be, and really show their human side so that people would feel more connected to the material. It really does accomplish that. Your book reinforces something that I, as a historian, have thought about for years, and that's how often great movements, ideas, inventions, accomplishments become associated with one person Mm -hmm. When in fact, almost nothing happens by a single person alone. It always <laughs> takes, you know, a supporting cast often of thousands. And Absolutely. Yet, maybe as humans, we're just celebrity oriented. We want to have that face and name to pin things to. And I Absolutely. Think I mean, it's easier to remember one name than to say, you know, this this body of people who did something. So, yeah. but But if we want to be honest, we have to realize that that one person, there's many people behind that one person. That's exactly right. Of course, as state historian, one of the things I really liked in your book is finding out about the number of people with strong Connecticut connections who played a role in the inventions you write about. And one of the first of those was Samuel Finley Morse. Now, I always called him Samuel F. Morse, but apparently he went by Finley, right? Right, right. He so, went by Finley. So, and I think most people know about him as the inventor of the telegraph and, of course, the creator of the Morse code. But what they don't know is that he, he originally aspired to be a fine artist, right? Oh, he was a fine artist. There are paintings. In fact, if you look at some shows like the Antique Roadshow, every now and then there'll be a painting from Samuel F. B. Morse. And that's him. He was a painter. That's what he wanted to do. That was his course in life. But then something happened and it kind of changed the direction of what he was going to work on. You know that he's kind of an impatient guy anyway. And he, he really became focused on the need for faster communication through a pretty terrible event that happened in New Haven while he was in Washington doing his grand commission, right? What was that? Right. So he's got this huge commission and he's in New and he's in Washington, D.C. And he's writing letters to home, telling his wife about all the wonderful things that he's experiencing. And he signs off one letter, I long to hear from you. And he sends that letter. A couple of days later, he gets a letter from New Haven. Now, he knows that that letter has nothing to do with the letter that he sent because it takes days to travel from Washington, D.C. to New Haven. And it's going to take a few days for a person to write. And then it's going to take a couple of days for that letter to get to him. The letter that he, ha he gets is from his father, and it's terrible news. His wife had died. And the day that he wrote, I long to hear from you, she had already passed. This was the fastest way that he could find out about the death of his wife through a letter. So that put him in a well-positioned place to want to figure out how to rapidly communicate. And so I say in The Alchemy of Us that it was the death of Lucretia Morse, who's buried in the Grove Street Men um, uh, Cemetery. She's the impetus for the desire to find a way to rapidly communicate, which propelled Morse to find that. But of course, as a Yale student, he'd had some experiments with electromagnetism and, and electricity, but it wasn't until six years after his wife Lucretia's death that he goes to Europe to improve himself as a painter. He's coming home and it's on the boat trip. That's that he right. Has, he has his aha moment. What happened? He has his epiphany. Yeah, yeah. So he's on he's on the deck of the Sully, and the Sully should be a ship that people know about. But this is where he had his aha moment. Uh, there's a gentleman called Charles T. Jackson who is a who's a medical doctor, but also interested in science. And he's talking about all the great lectures that he saw. And he he tells people on the boat. There's about 20 people on the boat about this experiment that he saw, where someone sent electricity on one end of a wire, and it was very very long, and and it would it took no time for the electricity to be on the other end of the wire. And then someone says, well, wouldn't it be neat if you can send information that way? And Morse, who's you know not the life of the party anymore, he gets out of his stupor and he's like, well, why can't we? And so this is what puts the pieces together for him to pursue his telegraph. And so he, on that boat, which was a several week journey, he's asking Jackson all different kinds of questions about how can I do it this way? Can I do it this way? Can I do it this way? And Morse had a little bit of a background. As you mentioned, when he was at Yale, he took classes from Jer Jer Jeremiah Day and also uh, Benjamin Silliman, uh, one in physics and one in chemistry. And so he had a little bit of knowledge, but he was able to put all these pieces together in his mind. And so when he re uh, arrived in New York City, he's like, OK, I'm working on this telegraph. And he does. And it doesn't happen right away. Right. Right. Five years later, he can what? Send a message a third of a mile or something. But then he teams up with a collaborator who I'd never heard of till I read your book. Alfred Vail. Alfred Vail, yeah. Yeah, and Alfred Vail, it depends on where you live. If you're in New Jersey, uh, people will say that it was Al Alfred Vail's code. It isn't Morse code. It should actually be <laughs> Vail's. They'll say it's Vail's cipher. If you, so there's, there's this tension. Vail was a fantastic machinist. 
he saw Morse's telegraph, which looked very rudimentary at the time, and they teamed up, and that's what made it possible for it to make this wonderful contraption that could send uh, over very, very long distances. People were already trying to send messages electromagnetically using a semaphore code, right? Where Right, right. But it was still a visual. It was called an optical telegraph because it looked like uh, the semaphore kind of looks like a person with their hands in different gestures. And from those different gestures, you can determine a letter of the alphabet. But it really required your eye to look at a hill, uh, often called telegraph hill, to get that message. But this was different. This was electricity. And actually, um, Morse made it so that it actually would uh, write out the dots and dashes. So it was more than just visual. You could actually store that information in some way. And Morse's approach with this written form of communication or this communication that is readable mm -hmm. also required the invention of this new language, didn't it? This the Morse code you're talking about specifically? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So initially, he had a very complicated way of um, of making his code. But that's, again, as I mentioned, uh, Vale was involved as well. And people actually think that Vale is the one who came up with the Morse code. Well, so that's still uh, debatable. You reproduce some of the communications back and forth. And from the letters that, or the, the excerpts from the letters that you use, it's pretty clear that both of them are really looking for the most concise way possible right. to right. communicate electronically. And that becomes... You know, that becomes a big factor in the effect of the telegraph on human culture, right? They actually choose the dots and dashes based on the frequency of the letters. So E is very frequent, so that got, that got a dot. Uh, I is a little less frequent, so it got two dots. So that's how they, 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 look, they got a piece of newspaper and they counted how many times a letter showed up. And that's how they uh, devised uh, their Morse code based on being concise. What a great idea. That's really cool. So... By 1840, Morse has gotten an American patent for his right. telegraph, right? Right. But there's been the panic of 1837. It's an economic depression. He can't raise money right. to actually make this idea operational. And it comes down, talk about a uh, down-to-the-wire finish on this. <laughs> it comes down to whether Congress is going to fund a demonstration project. That's so, right. So, That's right. And, and in the story, you know, Morse is really at the end of his rope. What happens? It yeah. So he's pretty destitute and he's in the gallery looking at uh, the list of things that have to be done as Congress closes. And his his petition is really, really low. So he's like, this is not going to happen. So he goes back to his hotel room to pack up to have breakfast the next morning. And when he gets there, Annie Ellsworth is there, and she's a teenage daughter of, of, of a very prominent man that we're going to talk about in just a second. And he and she's there to congratulate him. She's like, it was passed. And uh, so he now had money from Congress in order to install his uh, telegraph. So but, he didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah, he had actually left the Senate the day before and just said, "My, you know, yeah, forget it. I'm done. It's right. over. It's you know, I'm go I'm going back to well, God knows where I'm going back to." And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, but Annie Ellsworth's father, Henry Levitt Ellsworth, was also the commissioner of patents. So That's he right. Had been, He'd been a big champion, and Ellsworth was the. This is this is Connecticut history genealogy. It's more than most people want to know, but it's my job. <laughs> Henry <laughs> Henry Levitt Ellsworth was the son of Oliver Ellsworth, who was uh, one of the founding fathers. He was also the author of the Judicial Act that formed the Supreme Court of the United States and the rest of the federal judiciary. So, as one of the first Supreme Court justices, and this partnership, uh, Henry Henry Ellsworth and Morse had been Yale classmates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so, so this goes back to the fact that a genius is not working independently. He's getting help. He's getting nudges from different people. And Ellsworth was definitely uh, part of that formula. Yeah, Ellsworth Ellsworth was was a big champion for him. So so it's eighteen forty three. Congress has given a pretty substantial amount of money. Yeah, almost a million dollars. Yeah. And and he sets out to do this project. Annie Ellsworth brings him the news, this 14-year-old girl, and he gives her a reward. What is it? He says he's so excited because this man is fairly destitute. He's like, when I when I install my telegraph, 
I'm going to let you give me the first official message. And so that was the gift. And uh, so then he goes off to, to make that telegraph with bail, um, the 40 miles between D.C. and, and uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Right. So, so this first proof of concept message, first not proof, proof of, concept. of concept, but the first demonstration is right. going to be a telegraph message from the Supreme Court building, oddly enough, in Washington, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to Baltimore and back. Right. And right. Annie Ellsworth, the 14-year-old girl, has, as it turns out, 14 months to come up with this first message. Right. So, but she asked her, mo- her mother. Her mother's a very, very religious woman. And she chooses Numbers 2323. And, uh, and then, uh, so Annie gives that slip of paper to Morse, and he types out that message. And what the deal, the thing is that Vale is over in Baltimore, so he's going to type it back. And then Morse will receive the message. That's the proof of the their. The proof of, is that that yeah. Morse can send it to Baltimore. Someone right. can receive it, and they'll and send then send back it back. The same message. That's right. That's right. So that first message, what hath God wrought? That you exactly. know, a lot of us were taught in grade school is this is a big message. That's right. That, That's the first official message that uh, that was chosen by Annie Ellsworth's mother, uh, Numbers twenty three twenty three. So let me give you the Connecticut State Historian's review of the bidding on this first telegraph message. The first operational message of the telegraph, which was inspired by the death of the inventor's wife in New Haven, promoted by Morse's Connecticut-born classwork, Henry Levitt Ellsworth, was selected by a schoolgirl, Annie Ellsworth, and her mother, sent from the Supreme Court, which was established by her grandfather, Oliver Ellsworth, a Supreme Court justice from Connecticut. Clearly, this is a moment with Connecticut written all over it. This is a Connecticut story. We don't tell this story right, do we? Uh, we're starting to, thanks to you. This is... <laughs> Oh, let me just add one thing. Lucretia's, Lucretia's headstone is in the Grove Street Cemetery, and it's small compared to, to Morse's father. Yeah. And I take a picture of Lucretia's uh, headstone, and I put it in the Alchemy of Us, because this is actually the birth of the telegraph. To I be, think in, that's in my... wonderful. And, and I should add that Jedediah Morse, Samuel Morse's father, was America's first geographer. Jolly, quite, that's right. That's you know, right. An, an important person in his own right. Um, so, so Lucretia is buried in Jedediah's The same family. plot, the same family plot. Now, when you analyze the influence of Morse's message, you say it accomplished two things. And, and here's just one of the ways where you'll write along for a while and it's really good narrative. And then you'll say something that can just make you laugh out loud, or it's just such a, it's such a witty way of putting things. You just go, oh, that is so good. And you said that Morse's telegraph or Morse's, invent, Morse's message graduated the telegraph from toy to tool. It's just beautiful. <laughs> and it made the telegraph part of the social fabric of the nation. Over time, it also instilled in people this hunger for and this habit of consuming information. And that need for information, constant need for information, it, it became most apparent 40 years after that first message and that was when James Garfield was president. Tell us about that. James Garfield was the 20th president of the United States, and he was a rock star. He had the presence like JFK, and he was very forward-thinking about African-Americans like Abraham Lincoln. And also like these men, he was on the wrong side of an assassin's gun. And um, he was shot on his, while he was departing Washington, D.C., but he didn't die right away. So America was kept abreast of his health using the telegraph. People would send messages telling uh, the nation about how he's doing, what he's eating, what's his temperature. And that happened for over 100 days. And so this was the way that for the first time that the United States, the nation, was really focused on one individual and as a result connected to each other. So people would really gather by these places where the telegraph messages came in to see how Garfield was doing. Yeah, there were these huge blackboards that would be outside of hotels and telegraph offices, which would say, you know, today's bulletin, he ate well, he took a nap. And people were riveted. The, the crowds were like 12 bodies deep to, to, to read these uh, different bulletins from the White House. Following his condition bonded the country together in a way, didn't it? It was this, Absolutely. this focus yeah. on this one man. And you say that by lingering telegraphically at his bedside, the nation became accustomed to frequency, quality, and rapidity of news. More, better, now. I've got to know what's happening. It's got to be right 
you got to give it to me as soon as you can get it. And that is part of this whole compression of writing that goes on as a result of the telegraph. You say that over time, this need for concision, for conciseness, affects how people write and think. And you use it as, as an example, a cub reporter for the Kansas City Star in 1917, which, you know, another brilliant next step in the progression. So tell us about this, this kid reporter. Oh, well, this kid reporter uh, wanted to make a name for himself. And when he showed up to the Kansas City newspaper, they gave him a style sheet that said, use short sentences. Uh, don't use words that don't add to the meaning of the message. And he loved this style of writing. And he actually left that newspaper a couple of months later, went to war, and then decided to write some books. And we know him. His name is Ernest Hemingway. So his style was fashioned by the telegraph. And all children today are told to to write like Hemingway. Well, we're told to write by this, this style because of the telegraph. The telegraph had a limitation. It couldn't handle a lot of messages, so messages had to be shortened. And that's the reason why we kind of write the way we do today. As I'm reading this book, when I get to this part, I am thinking to myself, I wonder if Anissa Ramirez used the Kansas City Star style sheet <laughs> to learn how to write, because you write with that same kind of concise your book is so dense because you write so clearly and you don't, you just don't use fluff. How'd you learn how to do that? <laughs> Thank you, Will. You're very kind. I think it's also my science background. Um, you know, we really, it, and also from many of the classes I've, I've taken when it got in regards to writing, you know, they tell you that the point of a sentence, the purpose of a sentence is to make you want to read the next sentence. And so I actually have to push my ego back. All the things that I know about something that I want to share with you, if it's not helping the sentence, that can't go in the sentence. So I, if I use that as my mantra, that the sentence has to serve, that it's pushing you forward, then the fluff will trip you up. You'll get distracted. Your phone will ring. You'll want to eat. You'll go away. So if I keep it very, very concise, you know, as the telegraph had done, uh, then people, that will propel people forward. So that's where the style comes from. So do you draft and redraft when you write, or have you kind of trained yourself to write? Oh, no, no, no. Many, 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 many drafts. Many, 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 many drafts. Well, yeah. Just know, polishing the, and polishing and, and, you know, interrogating each word, each verb. Are you doing what I need you to do? Is this pointing people in the right direction? So lots, lots of revision. Well, those crystals are perfectly refined. You do it. You, Thank you. You just really do a great job. Now, you close your chapter on telegraphic communications with a reflection on the contemporary text message. You say that is, in a way, a direct descendant of Morse's quest for instant communication, literally instant communication in this really shorthand abbreviated form. Mm -hmm. But you also think that may be a bridge too far. It is. It is, because the ability to instantly communicate is, is great. I mean, if there's an emergency, you get information right away. But if it's your, one of your main ways of communicating, what's going on is that the text messages, as the telegraph had done, it removes the other ways that humans communicate. We look at each other's faces, we get expressions, we read each other's body languages. And if we're just looking at words on a screen and a couple of clever em emojis, we think we're communicating, but we're really losing some key skills. And what I'm talking about specifically is that we lose our ability to empathize. So, so text messages are great, but you should always have, if you can, have real life conversations because there's other ways that we communicate. You lose that social empathy that, you know, sure. so, so much of a communication or so much of a interaction in communication mm -hmm. is shaped by what you see in the person you're talking to while you're That's talking right. to them. That's right. And Without that, the text message has just completely done away with that feedback loop. And right. I, I often I often think that's why we become such a kind of angry society. We just we have no filters to hold back our insults at each other if we're not looking at each other. So it's true. And and we've all been there where we've sent an email and it just lands wrong. Um yeah. so and it's because we don't have those other dimensions working with us. So, so we have to be careful. And, and so, again, text messages are great, but just know that there's, yeah. there's something we're losing along the way. And boy, are those, those uh, thud emails hard to take back. 
They sure are. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> Oops, that's not what I meant yeah. to say. No, no, I really didn't mean that. I love yeah, yeah. it. I do. So yet another strength of your book is that you show in fairly dramatic ways that inventions can have both positive and negative consequences. And those negative consequences can be both intended and unintended. And uh, in your very aptly named and subtly named capture, you talk about the development of photographic film. I had never thought about the kind of problems this early film had. Kodak invents color film, and to help developers produce perfect pictures, they come up with a thing called the Shirley card. That's right. What was the Shirley card? The Shirley card is sort of like a cheat sheet, uh, because when you're doing color science, when you move one thing, another thing moves. If you go from magenta to cyan and, or black and white, it's very complex. Turning one knob turns another knob. So they created this cheat sheet that if you can just match this color with it, which, whichever way you're turning your knobs where you are, then that means that what you replicate is going to be exactly what we're producing. So it's so, sort of a cheap cheat sheet. So if you've got a Shirley card, right. you'll be able to produce perfectly colored pictures, right? That's right. That's but right. they didn't do that, did they? Well, the thing is that the Shirley card was this, um, was her her skin was very very light, and if you're using that as the standard, that means that people don't have who don't have that skin color don't aren't rendered correctly, and so that was one of the issues that was kind of there was bias built into the process, built into the film because it was optimized for lighter skin, and as a result, those who didn't have the same type of uh, who weren't from the same demographic didn't weren't rendered correctly. And you use that example to say that inventions kind of incorporate the values and biases of the time in which they're made. Absolutely. I mean, if the priority, I'll put it this way, engineers need to test different things in order to make something work. But if you don't think about a a broad, diverse population that you should test your film on, what you're doing is you're actually capturing your mindset, you're capturing the mindset of, of the times. And so what happened when they developed the Shirley card is that uh, they were just they were just going along with what was normal, which is just to focus on one particular population. Do you, do you think there's any way kind of taking that out of invention, taking out those inherent biases? If you have diverse groups, then you reduce the amount of biases. So if they had a diverse group of engineers or if they uh, if they tested their film on a diverse group, this would have been identified and they're like, you know what? And it would have been a little harder, but it would have been more inclusive. So it's, you know, they were, they had blind spots. They just focused on a certain population. In fact, uh, the original Shirley card uh, was based on a woman named Shirley, who was a secretary working at Kodak. So they just focused on her. So an employee of this institution it probably didn't have a broad, very diverse population. And so that's, that's how that happened. So they um, just followed their own kind of built. Yeah, they just went with and, they went with the flow. They didn't go. Ex- they didn't explore a little wider than that. Sometimes inventions are used in ways that are more insidious. That might have been built in because of their cultural biases. But right, the next aspect of films development, which was the brainchild of a Connecticut-born inventor, Edwin Land, who was like mm-hmm. the Steve Jobs of his era, he created the Polaroid Instant Camera. And uh, you tell the story of Carolyn Hunter, who went to work for Polaroid, and she and her friend Ken Williams, they, they came upon something, this, this instant camera that was supposed to bring, you know, you, you take it to the picnics, and it's a summer right. fun thing, and it's all the family photographs. Well, they found it being used for something much different, didn't they? Absolutely. So Ken and Caroline are both African-American employees at Polaroid, and they discovered that their employer is selling their technology to the South African government. And this is 1970. Uh, South Africa was an apartheid system. It was a police state. It was a very oppressive uh, uh, governmental system, particularly to black South Africans. And what these two find out is that every black South African has to carry with them a passbook. And a passbook is a document with about 20 pages in it. And at the heart of the passbook is a picture made by Polaroid. This is how the government controlled and monitored the whereabouts of this small, of the black population. And so they didn't, Caroline and Ken didn't think this was right, that this wonderful technology that was on everybody's Christmas lists in the United States 
was being used for more nefarious reasons on the other side of the planet. And so they went and did something about it. And that's what, what I did, talked So the first thing they did was they went to Polaroid management, right? That's right. So Ken, Ken was a very popular guy and he actually talked to the management and he's just like, hey, I don't know if you know that this is being used this way. And at first uh, they said, no, no, it's not being used this way. And if it is, well, it's, it's, we don't have a very large presence in South Africa. But these, these cameras were created that they could generate a lot of film, a lot of images in a short amount of time. They didn't require a darkroom and they were portable. So even if there weren't a few, a lot of cameras, is, cameras, it was still able to take the image of, you know, 15 million black South Africans. So they didn't, Ken and Caroline had also done a lot of research and everyone, all the newspapers in South Africa directly pointed to Polaroid. So their refusal to, uh, to acknowledge it didn't mean much to them. So, so that's when they became activists. Polaroid was just lying, right? Well, they were they were being legal about it. They're like, we don't have a presence in South Africa. And it was true because they had a distributor that was selling their technology. Uh, yeah. So they didn't have a building there. So yeah, that's it's why, not our fault. We just make the cameras. We just made the cameras and we just sell it. Yeah. But we're not there. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, we don't. Yeah. So Caroline and Ken say we're we're not. Yeah. They're like this is 1970. Kent State had just happened. This is the the there's Vietnam protests. So they're like, no, we're gonna fix we're gonna fix this. So, so what did they? You? Well, they at first they just put put up flyers in uh, Polaroid to let people know, and then they had rallies and they connected with student groups. Uh, they were at Cambridge. This is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So they they told the students at Harvard and all the different colleges about what was going on, and that that congealed a huge network of, of activists, including churches. And eventually, anytime Land would give a talk, there would be students there to say, okay, we'll talk about color photography, but can we talk about color people in South Africa first? Yeah, so yeah. They, they really put the pressure on him. So, so it really became a kind of painful PR experience for Polaroid. Oh, it was a nightmare. And Polaroid was all about PR because they were, they were the apple of their time. Everybody loved Polaroid. And, and then they had this, you know, this black eye. And and so, of course, what they did was finally say, Caroline, Ken, you're absolutely right. We're going to stop doing this. Is that what happened? No, no. It took it took a while. I mean, Caroline and Ken were both fired. They couldn't get a job in, in Cambridge. They were kind of blackballed. Wow. Um, and for seven years, they continued to rally and to let other people know, other activists in the United States. Caroline actually went to the U.K., and gave talks there, and then that became national news, so that's kind of how we, she spread the word. Uh, but eventually, uh, Polaroid uh, withdrew, and it was because there was an employee in South Africa who had seen a box of film that was connected to them, and then that kind of that kind of showed that, it yes, it was a direct cover. That, it blew their that, cover, completely yeah, blew their cover. That it wasn't just us. It's, it's yeah. It showed that they were actually in on it. Now, one of the things I wondered, which I didn't find in the book, do you know what happened to Caroline and Ken? Oh yeah, I met both. I met Caroline. Uh, yeah. Spoke to her a couple of times. So she's based in uh, in New England. Uh, Ken has since passed away. That's kind of a a model of activism that I think <laughs> is just you know it's really it's it was heroic. And they're in their twenties, twenties yeah. and thirties. I mean, this is this is I most people in their twenties don't want to be bothered. You know, yeah, but but, uh, but but you know to have that kind. I mean, it costs them personally. I think right. a significant amount, but to have such a profound effect, even though it took years to accomplish, that's that's, that's right. a great story. And thank you for doing it. And that verb capture, which people think you're capturing an image, well, there was a whole lot more being captured. And that's that, right. You know. There, there are two more Connecticans who figure in your stories of material invention that I'd like to talk about. And I could, I could talk to you for days because <laughs> you just know and know and know. I think people know about Samuel Morse and they know about Edward Land and the Polaroid camera. But few people, if any, know about William Wallace of Ansonia, Connecticut, who was a thick bearded man in his 50s. And one day he gets a surprise letter in the mail from the famous inventor Thomas Edison, who asked to come visit him. What did Edison come to visit this guy in Ansonia for? Well, imagine you're in your home and you get a letter from, you know, Elon Musk. That was like the quality of that letter. And Thomas Edison wants to come to Wallace's home because he heard that Wallace created a form of electric illumination and he wants to see it. And Wallace had been this gentleman tinkerer working in his attic for years. He created an early arc light 
It consisted of two carbon blocks that were separated from each other. And when he turned on this generator, a bolt of lightning went between the two blocks. And so it was a clean form of light. It was better than you know, oil lamps and, and gas lamps. It wasn't smelly and, and dirty. It was a very clean form. And so Edison wanted to come and see it. And very, very bright too, right? Extremely the... bright, extremely bright. Now, was Edison working on the light at the time? Did he think Wallace had solved something he was trying to? Edison was looking for his next best idea. He just came from vacation. He was very exhausted. And so he was looking for his next idea. And while he was on vacation, his colleague said, you know, there's a guy in Connecticut in Ansonia that you should go check out. He's made something that you should look at. And so that's, that was the pretext. And he comes to see uh, Wallace's invention, and he's just completely enamored with it. He's like, okay, I want to order one of those, and I want to order one of those. Get those to me as soon as possible. And but I understand so that, that even at a dinner that night, you know, like everybody's sitting around, Wallace has to think his his ship has come in. He's right? yeah, he's ecstatic. Yeah, Th- Thomas Edison loves my invention. He's ordered some. I right. am going to be famous too. And Edison is so enamored of this moment. He actually writes in, well, etches something into a drinking glass. Right? Yeah, there's a goblet, and he it's uh, he writes Thomas A. Edison, the date September eighth, uh, eighteen seventy eight, under the lights or something to something to that yeah. effect, just to 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 you know just to resonate that this this is a significant this day. is a big moment this is a big and, moment and the the it's been a hail fellow well-met day and it's wallace's big moment and he walks to the door and he's saying goodbye to edison and edison's farewell message is what he's like wallace i don't think you're doing it right i'm going to beat you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk about Putting a pen into the balloon, right? At the oh, my goodness. Minute. Wallace is just thinking that his this is his day because, you know, he lived in Ansonia. He, he actually, uh, his family had a big uh, uh, manufacturing firm. And so he was kind of considered to be a little aloof. Like, why is he doing all these science experiments? And so he thought that this was going to just justify all those years of sacrifice. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't and happen. It's so, so... He just he disappears from history. He, he pretty much, Edison, yeah. And Edison walks out the door. Well, he disappears until you, you know, until you reintroduce us to him in a in a big way. Edison goes on. He invents the incandescent light. He gets all the credit. And Wallace has to just scratch his head and wonder, you know, what happened. What, what yeah, I, I mean, we don't know much about how he felt afterwards, but he really felt that this was his moment um, and was just looking forward to working with uh, Thomas Edison. But it ends up that Edison just wanted to buy some of the equipment that he had. And you do see Wallace in footnotes of Edison, uh, Edisonial uh, biographies, but he never really gets his moment in the sun. Uh, this is probably a naive question on my part. Does this happen to inventors today? Are there people who's who share their information with people and then get left out? Or are we in a more litigious society and, and you couldn't get away with that today? No, it happens. And, it, and you really can't sue in science and you really can't prove uh, in science, especially if it's a big name like Edison and Wallace, a small person that we've never heard about. Wallace had no way to prove what he was doing and no one would believe him because it's the great Edison. But it still happens in science. People make contributions and it gets hidden. So yeah. still continues, so those unfortunately. those power dynamics still are in play. Very much so. So you note in this chapter on um, seeing that Edison's invention, the, this invention of the light, leads us to this world of 24-7 daylight. And that's changed human lives for the better in some ways, but also very much for the worse. And you really, you kind of develop that, don't you? All the, the problems of being in a world that is so well-lighted. Yeah, well, it's something that I didn't even know, but it ends up that our bodies actually have two modes. We have a daytime mode and a nighttime mode. We have a growth mode and a repair mode. And our bodies know which mode to be in based on the lights when we detect blue light. And when Edison was alive, they had people live but in a growth mode and repair mode because they had sunlight and then candlelight. Uh, can- sunlight is very has blue is blue rich and candlelight is very red rich. But we live under electric lights that are very rich in the blue, and so we're in daytime mode all the time. And so that's going to give rise to a whole bunch of health ailments, which is what I found while I was writing this book. The last four or five pages of that chapter is almost like the wake-up call for those of us who live in this very well-lit world. 
the final Connecticut inventor in your book is another guy from New Haven named George Willard Coy. And he went to the Skiff Opera House in New Haven one night in 1887. And that begins this journey of invention that ultimately leads to the silicon transistor and the computer. How about walking us down that road? You're right. So he goes to the Skiff Opera House and who's there? Alexander Graham Bell is going to demonstrate his wonderful new telephone. And this is huge. People are, you know, spending a lot of money to go and see this happen. And what they see is a a, a, a shoebox size box hanging from the ceiling where a voice comes out. And that voice is coming from uh, Middletown about 30 miles away. And and Morse, I'm sorry, and Bell is having a conversation with the box. And the audience is just so enamored that they just uh, they have a thunder of applause. They're like, this is amazing. A disembodied voice. This is amazing. And uh, then Bell talks about this, his telegraph and that how one day everyone will have one and uh, and we will be connected. But what we really need is we need a way to control how these calls are made, just like a faucet is able to shut something off and how gas valves are able to shut something off. We need something like this. The person he's talking to, by the way, in Middletown is the same Watson who... The same Watson, that's right. In that, you know, Watson, come here, I need you. When he made that first phone call, it's that same assistant, right? Same assistant, that's right. So they're having that conversation. So so the audience is pretty much eavesdropping on this conversation, but they're just loving it. Yeah. And Bell is saying, look, one day everybody's going to have this, but we got... Yeah, he's... And he's like, everyone's going to see this as a necessity, but there's this one other piece that needs to happen. We need a way to, to, to route, to change the way these calls are going. And there's a gentleman in the audience, uh, Coy, George Willard Coy, who hears this and he's like, this is amazing. So he goes to talk to Bell to see if he can get a license. It takes some time. Eventually he gets a license. And Coy is the one who developed an early switchboard. And it's made out of parts that would be very readily available in New Haven because there are bolts from carriages because... New Haven was very much in the carriage industry. Um, it's teapots. Uh, the wiring is made from his wife's undergarments because corsets were a big deal back then. So, uh, but it's a you know two by three foot box and it's got these bolts in it and it's the switchboard. This is how a person can make a call and those calls are are connected to an, to another customer. The world's first switchboard and that takes us all the way to who is it? Stroger, Amon Stroger. Amon Stroger, right. Amon Stroger is this uh, ornery uh, mortician who believes that the uh, the operator is rerouting calls away from him to his competition uh, in the embalming business. So he's like, I'm going to make a way to get rid of the operator. So he makes an automatic switch. So Coy makes the uh, telephone switch and Stroger makes the automatic switch. And then that's on the path to finding a more... Uh, encapsulated way to make a switch. And that happens years later at, uh, at Bell Laboratories, which is the transistor. Which is Gordon Teal. Gordon Teal, yeah. Well, the physicists invent the transistor at first, uh, but they use a very imperfect material. And he, he knows how to make a pristine material so that it'll have more reliable properties and so that it can be more robust. And so he tries to get more involved in that program. And eventually he works off hours to make this pristine material to make a better switch. I, I loved in that chapter, you talk about the pecking order among scientists at the Bell Labs, and Teal was a chemist, <laughs> right? So he was he was the lowest of the low, and he right. was fighting to get his place, and, and he ends up scooping them. He walks in with silicon transistors to a meeting some years later and says, yeah, you can make a silicon right. transistor, and I got them. It's a, a great story. It was pretty yeah. much a mic drop where you just like, here it is. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the presses do stop and, and the world stops because with the silicon transistor, you now have the stage for the computer and the computer now becomes an auxiliary form of the human brain. And this chapter is called Think. Mm-hmm. And you have a very thoughtful discussion or reflection at the end of your book on the internet and you know let me just let me let me condense it down to the question you ask has the internet made us smarter or dumber <laughs> yeah that that was a question that was proposed by someone else but i just kind of followed through because i was writing 10 years later right. and 
it ends up that because the computer and the internet with our cell phones is so um, pervasive, pervasive, we kind of offload the information that we need to store. So the way I like to uh, demonstrate this is I'll ask someone, you know, what's your mother's phone number? And I'm not being rude, but I'm trying to prove a point because most people don't know their mother's phone number. I'm sure that they love their mother, but it's in the cell phone. Right. So if we store information not in our brains, but, you know, offloaded, this actually will touch upon things that make us very, very human, particularly how we use our creativity. Uh, and they're still doing early studies, but if we only remember where the information is and not what the information is, then there's really no time to simmer on that information and put it together in new ways, which is what humans do very, very well. So that's what I was saying, that this technology is now touching upon things that we as humans don't realize are, that make us so human, our ability to and, communicate. And, and I mean to create. That is so important. We're offloading our storage banks onto these other devices rather than putting them in, in these places where we can ruminate and reflect on them. Um, that's right. And, and this, is, this, this world is still so new, we, we don't know really what the long-term effects are going to be, but... Um, it'll be a change. We, don't, we know that it'll be something. I mean, people will continue to be creative, but it may not be the way that we used to be creative if we're not, as you say, we're not simmering on ideas. There you go. Well, whatever computers are doing to our thinking, the alchemy of us is a fascinating and deeply thought-provoking accomplishment. And it's a, it's a real accomplishment. It's also a great read. And I do hope, I mean this, if you have not read The Alchemy of Us, put it at the very top of your summer reading list. The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Anissa Ramirez, you're a force of nature. You're really, it's been wonderful oh, to talk you. with you. And I just thank you so much for this, this achievement in writing. It's terrific. Thank you so much, Walt. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Be sure to put The Alchemy of Us at the top of your summer reading list. It'll make you think differently about, well, thinking differently. And you can read Anissa Ramirez's story about the Connecticut inventor who became the first African-American woman in Connecticut to get a patent in Sarah Boone Invents a Better Ironing Board at ctexplored.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. <laughs>